Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. My name is Gyokuko, which roughly translates as Jade Lamp. Um, I was ordained in 1975 at Shasta Abbey, which is in Northern California. Uh, in 1982, I married Kyogen Carlson and we came up to Portland to start looking after a very small meditation group in a house in the Lloyd Center District. And I was abbot with him uh, until he died in uh, 2016, I think, and um, until I retired, which is fairly recent. So, when I lived in the monastery as a monk, I went through a period that the Catholics call formation. And that formation consists of, uh, it's a life of discipline, simplicity. Um, you're not allowed to have opinions. You're not allowed to read anything. You're not allowed um, any self-direction. And during formation, many, if not all of us, experience returning to childhood. The all-pervading unknowingness of it, the vulnerability, the simplicity, it leads us into a place that is essentially naive. The skill of a master in that situation is to watch that process of stripping away, stripping down, and then discerning when to start building up again, start adding responsibility, start asking an opinion, start allowing for some individuality in that. assigning some study, some Dharma study. And it also includes treating with less tenderness, less uh, taking off the kid gloves and working a little more vigorously with helping that person to become who they need to be and help them let go of things that are even subtly destructive. When I left the monastery to come here, I was not a master. 
I was not skilled in guiding someone from formation to mature actualization. All I had to recommend me was seven years of that stripping down and building up. I was definitely not who I had been at the beginning of this process. The transformation was painful at times, but very rewarding. That was 41 years ago. One of the tasks that was given me when we came to Portland was to learn how to teach children in the context of a Buddhist center in the city. I was smart enough to know that you don't go about it by stripping them down the way I was stripped down. In the course of over 30 years working with children and parents, I acquired some of the vocabulary and concepts that explained why we don't do that to children or to adults that aren't in possession of a stable sense of self. Psychology is really useful in this. The education of educators is really useful. It's not an, not an academic education that I ever had. But I read enough to know that Piaget and Erickson and some others have made detailed studies of childhood development. And they know the stages in ways that I can only glimpse at a distance. But I came to understand that the teaching of Buddhism to children and also to fragile adults is the opposite of stripping down. It is building up. The third patriarch of Huayan Buddhism in China, Fatsang, said sentient beings, faculties, and capacities are not the same, so they receive understanding in myriad different ways. And I think that's why we have different schools of Buddhism, different styles of practice. It's not that essentially Buddhism is different or you've got it right and I've got it wrong. It's essentially that Different schools, different practices reach people in different ways. The training under which I was formed was monolithic. You either benefited from it or you had to leave eventually. The monastery did not bend itself to suit the needs of the individual. 
it was what it was. But coming to Portland and teaching in a temple with an open door policy meant that our teaching needed to bend and soften and be responsive to the needs and potential of the myriad beings that entered that door. Over time, one thing I learned and passed on to others in the children's program is that context is more important than content. And that's shorthand for saying, the way you arrange the room, the way you comport yourself, the way things are done, is more important than any words that come out of your mouth and any ideas that you think you're going to stuff into somebody else's head. I had an occasion to fight a potential teacher in the children's program who wanted to teach a Dharma lesson. Let's teach in quotes. That impulse to teach, to fill somebody else's head with your ideas, your concepts, and your beliefs can come out of fear, it can come out of ego, it is not necessarily responsive to who it is that is supposed to receive this. It is more important for a teacher to ground themselves in the Brahma Vihara, to really be kind, to be compassionate, to be grounded in equanimity, to be joyful, A teacher who brings that into the classroom is teaching the Dharma. Even if they're just cutting out paper snowflakes, they are teaching the Dharma. Our mental states are contagious. which is why the Buddha advised us to choose our companions wisely. And it is why anyone who is teaching children should be screened for their ability to be calm, their ability to be patient, their ability to be kind, their ability to be joyful. Even a pre-verbal child will recognize and respond favorably to kindness when it is acted out in front of them. You can see it in their faces, in their body. 
And conversely, when you act out something that is unfair, mean, they get agitated. By centering ourselves in our practice and realization, we create an atmosphere in which the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha can be accepted, can be taken in as friends, as refuges. received with trust and friendship. And trust is important. I heard on the radio a few weeks ago, somebody said, trust is the fabric that holds a society together. If we can create a classroom that engenders trust, we are teaching the Dharma and we are building citizens. And I mean citizens in the national sense, in the global sense, and within our sanghas. Lest you think I am recruiting you <laughs> into the realm of teaching children, I want to point out that this is a more specific example of something that has a general application to our practice. Fatsang makes the point that approaching people with this sort of generosity is not just a gift to others, children, adults, relatives, people in the grocery store. It is part of our own path of awakening. It is a gift to ourselves. I'm going to be boring and read you some stuff. <laughs> this is translated straight from Fatsang. To plumb this ocean of essence and comprehend that forest of practice, I bring up six separate gates through which they all, meaning us all, become a single view, different yet not mixed, clear all in one. I hope that sentient beings will turn back from deluded ways so that the sun of illumination can dawn for all alike. May civilized people who uphold the way be humbly thoroughgoing in this study. Now, I'm not going to read you all six of his gates, but number four is practicing four virtues. 
the virtue of subtle function according to conditions without convention. That takes some unpacking. <laughs> the virtue of maintaining dignified, regulated, exemplary conduct. The virtue of receiving beings with gentleness, harmony, honesty, and straightforwardness. And the virtue of accepting suffering in place of all sentient beings. So when he goes to unpack that, he says, first is the virtue of subtle action according to conditions without convention. This means initiating action based on reality for the widespread welfare of sentient beings. Sentient beings' faculties and capacities are not the same. So they receive understanding in myriad different ways. Their inclinations are not the same. So they are given teachings according to their state of potentiality, like being given medicines in according with their illnesses. This meaning is thoroughly clarified in the Vimalakirti scripture. So one of the things that we did in our children's program is we always started with singing. We'd have 15 minutes of singing before anything else happened. And the reason we did that was twofold. One is singing gives us access to joy. It gives us access to companionship. <clears throat> because we sing in harmony together. And it's also a very sneaky way of teaching. It has been shown that when adults who had any kind of religious education are asked what they learned in that education, they get really fuzzy, but they remember the songs. And what we have found over time is that kids who started with our program and learned these songs actually later on are able to apply the lessons in real life. There's something that sneaks in past any coolness past any defenses that might be put up against talking heads. When they sang it, they remembered it and they absorbed it and they were able to put it to use. Sometimes it got used against their parents, which was interesting. By virtue of great compassion, it is called according to conditions, and by virtue of great wisdom, it is called subtle action. And by virtue of not demolishing artificial names and yet always liberating sentient beings, it is called according to conditions. 
If you comprehend the inherent emptiness of sentient beings, there is really no one to liberate or be liberated. So it is called subtle action. Moreover, because the real does not oppose the mundane, you accord with conditions because the mundane does not oppose the real. You function subtly. Further, you produce the branches from the root, and so it is according to conditions. And you gather the branches back to the root. So it is subtle function. Abiding in the Brahma Viharas. We benefit ourselves and we benefit others. And the more we drop the distinction between benefiting self and benefiting others, the more we enter into that gateway to enlightenment. That's my talk for the day. So we have time for a few questions if anybody would like to or, or um, and or reflections. And before you ask your question, could you say your name, please? Shelley. I think you just answered the question I had before I came here. That last uh, paragraph, I think. Because, the, you know, the whole question about uh, the death, Theravada and sin, and I'm thinking that what you said was kind of the merging of the two as you're, as you're working on self, you're, as you're compassionate to yourself, you're compassionate to others. And then, so therefore, somehow, therefore, you're, that's part of the bodhisattva vow. Yeah. Absolutely. When, when you understand the Bodhisattva vow is, I'm going to do this thing for all living beings, you're not there yet. When, when you start to understand that the, the whole thing about being a Bodhisattva is I'm not entering into parinirvana until all beings come with me. You also under, if you deeply understand that, you know that when you enter into parinirvana, all beings come with you. That, that's just the way the physics of that work. I got you on that, didn't I? <laughs> Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Could you speak a little bit more um, about when you said more important for the words you're going to teach is how you arrange the room, how you yeah. conduct your 
activities. Could you speak a little bit more about that? I think if you have um, a really good lesson planned and you've thought about it and you created an activity that would go with it and uh, you've got it all thought out and all the materials are there and you're ready to go and one of the kids comes into your room with an attitude that is not cooperating with your perfect plan. Your reaction in that moment is a make or break for the whole of the lesson. Not just for that kid, not just for the teacher, but for everybody in the room. If if the teacher tries to suppress that kid's reaction, everybody in the room is dampened in their engagement. They're, they're, they're going to be uh, afraid or resentful or they're going to be tense. And in order for us to truly receive anything, we need to be relaxed. And so to the extent that that teacher can be relaxed, make a game out of interacting with that kid that has an attitude, uh, find a way to bring that kid into some kind of engagement, um, what, whatever can be done in that that puts everybody more at ease that tends to diffuse that the the teacher is going to get through that with less residue but also the kids are going to be more receptive to whatever that perfect plan was hi doug um I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your approach to teaching when you talked about the fragile person, the fragile adults, and children being different. But I'm not a teacher at all, but I'm just curious about the different approaches you see in meetings and things like that. I, um, after some years of teaching in a, a lay temple context, I realized that um, three quarters of my job was cheerleader. It's like, okay, you had a moment of calmness. Yay, that's good. <laughs> and that's the building up part. That's encouragement, try, trying to get people. Uh, I talk about um, gold stars. People are struggling with, um, um, maybe they're addicted to porn or maybe they're addicted to video games or they're um, addicted to their anger. So anytime you make one little half step toward letting go of that thing that has you caught, I was encouraging. I, 
I tell them, give yourself a gold star. That was really good. We're not concentrating on all the stuff that isn't done yet. We're concentrating on, let's have a little positivity into that thing that you made some success with. And that is generating ease, that's generating positivity, and that the more you can be uh, encouraged to be positive about making success, the more you are going to be motivated to have more successes. The more you think I'm a failure, the more you're going to be a failure. And so that's, that's my job. I'm cheerleader. <laughs> I never was in high school. <laughs> Not my thing, but I am now. <laughs>